So this is Cold War Brew. Welcome, welcome everyone. I'll probably speak for about 15-20 minutes about this subject. I'm starting a half hour early today because i got to leave a little bit early. But I would like to have more discussion with you all here in the room. So thank you so much for coming live. And this, of course, is about Madeleine Albright. Again, Madeleine Albright died on March 24th, and that led to a firestorm of praise from the establishment. She is well regarded as someone who represents everything that the United States is supposed to be about. And uh, really, this face of a term that she employed frequently that is the quote-unquote indispensable nation. And really that's just a euphemism for the U.S. being the hegemonic and imperialist power in the world. And Madeleine Albright certainly gave a so-called progressive face to it, really just a female face to it. And that is what I wanted to discuss today because All of the praise she is receiving from the New York Times, calling her a brilliant analyst of world affairs, to the CNN saying that we need to heed the lessons of her foreign policy. All of this is really to obscure her actual work, which was extremely destructive, incredibly violent, and must be remembered for what I think is really important and relevant to this podcast uh, for this new Cold War. She really laid the basis for it. She was a Cold Warrior, and uh, we are going to talk about her history and how she got to the place she was in when she died, which is the chair of the National Democratic Institute, uh, one of these many offshoots of the CIA, which uh, the National Endowment for Democracy is well known Uh, or more well-known, I should say. So, you know, Madeleine Albright, she started uh, in a family in Czechoslovakia where she supposedly escaped fascism and fleed fascism. But the true story is that she was actually fleeing socialism. So, of course, true to being a cold warrior, it's really helpful to grow up and be embedded within... Uh, anti-communism. So that that was her family. Her family was anti-communist. They fleed the socialist bloc. They came to first uh, Britain, England, and then they ended up, or then she ended up in the United States. It's important to note that she went to Columbia University as a graduate student, and she became a mentee of Zbigniew Brzezinski. And so she cultivated such a close relationship with Brzezinski, who was the ultimate cold warrior, that she ended up becoming uh, a member of Jimmy Carter's National Security Council, and she would be an advisor for uh, almost every Democratic Party presidency after that, a foreign policy advisor. Um, and, And it began with Brzezinski. And so... As Brzezinski was employing his model to destroy the Soviet Union by having the U.S. through the CIA pledge support and provide weapons and financial and logistical support to the Mujahideen, she was part of that process. She was learning 
from him advising the Carter administration. And that is how she got her uh, sort of entrance into the foreign policy establishment. And so she would eventually work her way up, right? Break the glass ceiling, become an intersectional imperialist uh, through her diligent service to empire. And this would land her a position as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Now here, she is most well-known for her interview with 60 Minutes, where after a, a long period of sanitizing and providing cover and uh, going around the world as well as talking to the public in the the United States about Iraq and why Iraq needs to be sanctioned. The United Nations did a study on the impact of sanctions in Iraq, and it was estimated that 500,000 children died because of the impact of sanctions. And so when she was asked by the 60 Minutes host, Leslie Stahl, whether the price of sanctions was worth it, Albright answered in the affirmative that indeed the sanctions had been worth it. The effect of the sanctions had the impact that they wanted it to have. And then later on, and of course in her autobiography, she attempted to claim that she was not trying to say that the deaths were worth it, but really that the political impact of the sanctions eventually leading to the overthrow of Saddam Hussein was what she really meant. But in reality, she didn't say that at the time. She didn't make any such clarification. And she was asked directly about the 500,000 deaths of children alone. This is not even to count the adults, the women, so many people in Iraq who died of sanctions prematurely. This doesn't even count them. So she is known for this, right? A lot of people who have any understanding of U.S. foreign policy remember this moment, cite this moment. But of course, in all the obituaries that you find of Madeleine Albright, you will not see this. New York Times, you go down the line, NPR, they do not mention this fact. And one of the things that they do mention, however, a few of them have mentioned because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, is the fact that she was a huge champion of NATO expansion. And surprise, surprise, training under Zbigniew Brzezinski, whose whole foreign policy agenda was the destruction, dismemberment of the Soviet Union, right, giving the Soviet Union its own Vietnam. It's not a surprise that Madeleine Albright had an obsession with NATO expansion, because NATO expansion, I mean, NATO itself was designed, right, for the Cold War. It was all about containing the Soviet Union and eventually destroying it through this so-called sort of pan-European unity militarily with the United States. But even after the Soviet Union broke up, Albright became this kind of... uh, champion of the effort to destroy Yugoslavia. And through the destruction of Yugoslavia, Albright championed NATO expansion into Poland, into uh, uh, Hungary, and into the Czech Republic, her birthplace. And all of that happened in 1999 amid the U.S.'s destructive bombing campaign 
in Yugoslavia through NATO, which not only killed thousands of people in the Yugoslav republics, the various republics, especially in Serbia, where a lot of the bombs were concentrated, but it also killed three Chinese journalists when NATO bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade in May of 1999. So this war really characterizes the legacy of Madeleine Albright because it was Madeleine Albright during the Rambouillet meeting, conference in France. It was her, it was she who sort of sabotaged any kind of hope for a peaceful resolution to this conflict by demanding that NATO troops in the tens of thousands have the right to essentially colonize and occupy Yugoslavia, to be stationed there and to have a direct military control of the country, which, of course, as we know through Ukraine, means political control. And and so that was, of course, unacceptable to Slobodan Milosevic, and that provided and laid the basis for the war. Uh, It was Albright who said, Right, or at least it is rumored that Albright had said after this conference that she had intentionally, right, it was supposedly a high level US official, it's most likely Madeleine Albright who said this, that they intentionally demanded so much of Serbia that they knew it wasn't going to work, and that's because it was bombing. Uh, it was bombing that was needed, they, and that's exactly what they were going to get. That's a sort of paraphrase of what was said privately to the media during these negotiations, after these negotiations. So the destruction of infrastructure, the targeting of journalists, the bombing of media buildings, the destruction of water sources, hospitals, all of that, which occurred during the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia, really falls at the feet of Madeleine Albright and her rabid and rampant anti-communism, which, of course, is a central pillar of the Cold War. And so if we count the sanctions against Iraq, if we count the destruction of Yugoslavia, and then if we talk about the genocide in Rwanda, which there has been some mention about her controversial stance to prevent the United States from providing any kind of peacekeeping forces to to restrain them, to ensure that the mass murder that was happening there continued. Uh, There is some acknowledgement of that because people like Samantha Power made their whole career off of this whole idea that the United States was a passive bystander to genocide. And that's why humanitarian interventionism is necessary. That's why the United States has to come to the aid of the, uh, you know, of the poor Africans. But in reality, what was happening was that the United States had trained Paul Kagame, the Re- uh, Rwanda Patriotic Front, uh, uh, the Rwanda Patriotic Front uh, general, who eventually would become president of the, um, hold on one second, who became president of the, um, of Rwanda who was participating in these 
who's participating in these mass killings, uh, this this was really the legacy of Madeleine Albright. It wasn't just that she was trying to strong arm the United Nations and prevent that conflict from ending, which was exactly the case. That was exactly what was happening. But it was also the fact that the United States had a political agenda there that Albright was facilitating, which was the empowerment of Paul Kagame, who was their man in Rwanda, who was also participating in a genocide in Rwanda and was looking to mobilize his forces, the RPF, and, and then later these proxy forces, right? Uh, Paul Kagame being a, a Ugandan, right? A Ugandan who was trained by the United States to take power in Rwanda and then to wage a two-front assault, a multi-front assault on the Democratic Republic of Congo, leading to millions of more deaths, right? More deaths than the Holocaust have occurred in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, since 1996. So, and that's because of Madeleine Albright's policy toward Rwanda. And so with all of this said, she has the blood of millions on her hands. And it's because she was trained in the art of the Cold War. She was a cold warrior. Her entire legacy is based upon this notion that not only should the United States win the Cold War, but after the Cold War was won, the United States should be the permanent hegemon, that it should be the indispensable, quote-unquote, nation. That is what her entire legacy hinged upon. And of course, she continued this work, right? Starting a consulting firm, a huge consulting firm for bankers and militarists. Uh, But on top of that, she ended up becoming chair of the National Democratic Institute, which just like the National Republican Institute and the National Endowment for Democracy received millions upon millions in congressional funds to funnel to uh, proxies, to so-called quote-unquote civil society groups and uh, so-called democratic opposition forces in places like Syria, Ukraine, Afghanistan. We can go on and on and on, right? Back to D.C. with opposition forces in Xinjiang or, or against uh, China around Xinjiang, right? These forces are the are the soft power arm of imperialism, and she was chairing one of its most important institutions on behalf of the Democratic Party wing of imperialism. So that is her legacy, and that is her relationship to the Cold War, because her career had some interesting flashpoints, right? Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, of course, was a champion of normalization of relations with China, only to, of course, isolate the Soviet Union. And Malin Albright took that into her tenure as uh, UN ambassador, as U.S. ambassador to the UN, and as uh, Secretary of State by pushing for an easing of relations with the DPRK. And of course, we shouldn't look at this as, okay, these are just uh, singular positive achievements, 
but really they fall within this grander context of every post, especially during the post-Cold War, every post-Cold War administration in order to sanitize a bit their pensions for endless war and to expand U.S. hegemony, they all have to have a foreign policy legacy moment, right? Obama's was GPCOA, the so-called Iran nuclear deal, Cuban normalization. Trump attempted, although I wouldn't say that Trump did it very well, but he attempted, of course, to... um, He attempted to normalize relations or at least ease relations with Russia, not very well and not very powerfully, but that was his campaign slogan. And so every... Right, every administration in the post Cold War era has this kind of foreign policy legacy moment. Unclear what Biden's will be. Biden, I think, has tried the Russia thing, is now trying desperately through the Ukraine crisis to maybe build one with Iran, maybe. But uh, the space is closing in for this. And so we shouldn't look at any of Albright's uh, perhaps less uh, evil policy, lesser evil policies, as any kind of nuance to her overall record. Really, her overall policy orientation was to bring the United States into a new Cold War as a way to solidify the legacy of the first Cold War, which was to destroy and obliterate any alternative to to U.S. rule, to any to U.S. hegemony. That was what the first Cold War was about through the anti-communist assaults domestically and abroad. And that's what the new Cold War is about uh, with the targeting of Russia and China. And of course, all the domestic and global manifestations of U.S. policy in that regard. So, uh, Madeleine Albright, she was a Cold Warrior and... She should be remembered not as some kind of trailblazer for women, but really a a trailblazer for death, destruction, and a more dangerous planet. Uh, And so our job then is to understand her record, understand her legacy as a killer, as an imperialist, as someone who just had absolutely no regard for human life, who was a profiteer through and through, who saw through the eyes of monopoly capital, the military-industrial complex and empire, uh, and not through the eyes of ordinary working-class women or or really anybody, right? She was a a virulent racist. She was anti-Serbian. She hated, uh, she had contempt for the people of Iraq. She had absolutely nothing worth celebrating uh, in terms of uh, political qualities. And so we have to be vigilant and not allowing this propaganda to bring us back to this place of intersectional imperialism, which we've been in, where we can just be, uh, or especially the left can just be bamboozled into thinking that there is some kind of lesser evil here. Uh, The evils of imperialism are all interconnected. And people like Albright lead directly into people like Trump 
and people like Trump lead us directly back to people like Albright and her good friends, uh, Hillary Clinton, the Clintons, the Democratic Party wing of the establishment. And we learned that pretty overtly, I think, pretty pronounced when it was Madeleine Albright who said there was a special place in hell for women who don't help each other during the 2016 Clinton campaign in reference to just people within the Democratic Party, especially women who were dissatisfied with the establishment. So this weaponization of feminism, of of sexism, of the fight against sexism, and then we can go with Obama's and and racism, something I'll probably do an episode about, identity politics, uh, is all part of this calculation. And it is a product of the Cold War. So there you go. Madeleine Albright was the cold warrior. And yeah, let's open this up to a conversation now because, uh, you know, I want to definitely take callers. Let's have, uh, let's have a, a, um, yeah, let's have a a good conversation. Um, I just need to find out if there's anybody in the queue. They need to get there. Um, Let's see. Okay, there we go. Hussein, you are in the queue. I'm going to take you now. Uh, I think you can unmute. Hey, Danny. How you doing? Hey, good. Yeah, that was um, a good uh, introduction. Yeah, I mean, I grew up um, like following Middle Eastern uh, politics really closely in the 90s, early 2000s. I came from uh, South Lebanon. And there was a very, very few... Um, you know, people in the Middle East that that said, you know, the truth about her and they would say how bad she was and how how much of a warmonger she was. And, right. you know, I always wondered uh, if, if she ever had any real good intentions or if she just wanted, you know, war all the time. Um, I, I don't really have a question. I just agree with... Uh, with what, how you you introduced her, and I'm trying to understand like that whole uh, Cold War uh, mentality that she had. Yeah. And then I was listening to a, an interview uh, last week. Uh, Aaron Mate and uh, Max Lewis were interviewing uh, Scott Ritter, mm. and uh, the news of her dying came while they were doing the interview. So they uh, so Scott Ritter gave a a war story from the 90s uh, uh, about her. And at the end of the story, he said he stopped the war and she hated him ever since. Mm. Which war were they referring to? Uh, it was some assignment. He was going to Iraq for to dig up some, you know, dirt on WMDs. And there was other ways to get, like, to get rid of the WMDs in in the nineties, but she wanted that, you know, she wanted it to be uh, with intervention instead of like peacefully, like dismantling the Saddam's WMDs. They, they wanted it to come out with, with war instead. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that was, that was, that was a really good interview. I mean, I, I forgot the details, but but he ended it by saying, I stopped the war and she hated me ever since. Like, that was really powerful. Yeah. 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 No, that's, uh, 
That's a really good point. I mean, I mean, that's really interesting too. It's interesting as well. And I'll, I'll bring James in. I'll just say this. Thank, Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Um, I'll just say this uh, to what you said, Hussein, is that this is not uncharacteristic of Albright either. I'm not surprised that Scott Ritter had that experience because it is also pretty, I think it was Colin Powell who wrote in his own book, uh, I believe it was autobiography, who wrote that he was just absolutely, I mean, this is Colin Powell. This is someone who was like a, he was like a, a, a killer in Vietnam in his own right, when he was in the military and that, you know, he was a part of my lie, I believe. And then, um, and then of course we know about Colin Powell's just absolute warmongering record. This, this dude was not afraid to get his hands dirty. However, even he was taken aback by, Albright's reaction to him when he, as he was part of the chief of staff, I believe, under Clinton during the whole Yugoslav crisis early on. So right after Yugoslavia was booted from the United Nations, no longer useful to the United States after the Soviet Union fell, Albright was calling for sending troops to Bosnia, uh, sending U.S. troops into Bosnia. And Colin Powell just made the argument, hey, we don't. Uh, we don't need to do this. This isn't necessarily in our interest right now. And she castigated him and said, what's the point of having this superior military if you're not going to use it? And he was just, he was just taken aback by that. And I find that story to be just a, um, uh, just a, an indication of her war criminality, but let's get James in here. I have made you the caller, James. How's it going? You can unmute yourself if you're muted still. Uh, well, it looks like James is not unmuted yet. Um, and Peter. Let me get to Peter first, and I'll get back to you, James. Oh, no, James, you're back. Oh, no, James, back. Oh, well, I just wanted to point out the coincidence of um, the militarization of police during the entire during her entire stint in our government, I mean, 30 years of the laws changing and everything. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. Um, the militarization of the police under Clinton, definitely, I mean, it, it, all of it just ramped up. The mass incarceration state, it's a very important connection to make that as, the United States was building up this kind of post-Cold War foreign policy or- orientation of full-spectrum dominance and doing so in all sorts of different ways, right, through counterinsurgency, through proxy wars, coups, and direct military interventions, the huge growth of the military budget. There was also this focus on how to wage what I would call a class war in the United States more effectively to prevent any kind of uh, real genuine movement from emerging in the United States. 
after the fall of the socialist bloc, and that was through mass incarceration, militarized policing, as you mentioned, James. Uh, it is so important to make that connection uh, because they are connected, and, and uh, certainly we know who's benefiting. Uh, we know it's uh, both the state and its military-industrial complex uh, donors who benefited mightily from this war on drugs and all sorts of other uh, ways in which uh, young black people were criminalized and uh, poor people were criminalized during this period. Uh, The militarization abroad is always connected to to the militarization at home. So I'm going to get to you, Peter, now. You can unmute. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Cool. Yeah, uh, thanks again, Danny, for hosting this. Uh, I mentioned to you last time that uh, I'm a a big uh, Vietnam War uh, buff, just like uh, most a lot of folks here, a Civil War buff. Because uh, I grew up uh, uh, near uh, Vietnam uh, in China. Back then, we have to prepare to dive into the shelter in case there will be an airstrike against China by the U.S. Mm-hmm. So uh, it took me 30 years to understand, uh, which I actually want to recommend to you to th- think through whether uh, this Albright should be called a Cold War warrior. Uh, to me, the Cold War actually is an imperialistic war, a colonial war, uh, because uh, it's, it's incorrect, uh, it's uh, conveniently turned as a Cold War against the communists. But at the time, uh, the war in Vietnam, first of all, is not cold, it's very hot, uh, you know, as hot as uh, 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 like one notch down from a nuclear war. Uh, second is that uh, uh, if you go through those uh, Pentagon paper and uh, and all that, you will find out that the only reason the U.S. decided to go to put up a fight in Vietnam is really because they don't believe the Vietnamese uh, can can win. Just like uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur believed the Chinese uh, uh, will uh, you know will never come uh, into Korea. Uh, to put up a fight. So it's actually, to me, the Cold War is entirely racially based uh, because if you look at the Pentagon paper, there's no rationale to con- to get into or continue that war for such a long time. If not, but, uh, you know, if not for this uh, superiority feeling within, you know, this uh, white dominated administration, whether it's a Democrats or Republican. To carry on, so Albright to me, you know, she is a very similar to uh, many other uh, uh, people from a disadvantaged background. That uh, she, well, she will do whatever her master uh, uh, have told her to do. You know, a, a quick example. I was always amazed how George W. Bush can gather so many racial minority experts, Colin Powell included, to support his war in Iraq. I will give you an example. Uh, Colin Powell, we all know what he did, right? Like uh, what Albright did. Uh, uh, Gonzalez, the attorney general, he is the one who go to see Ashcroft in the, in the hospital bed to ask Ashcroft to authorize the, the warrantless surveillance of all Americans. Gonzalez, Alberto Gonzalez, is a Hispanic American. We know what Condoleezza Rice did. Another racial minority, right? Another one is Zhang Yu. Her, his last name is Y O O. 
he grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, he is the one who uh, wrote the legal memo supporting George W. Bush administration's uh, torture. It's called the torture memo. He also, uh, this, he, he's, he's a lawyer. He, right now, he, I think he teaches in either UC Berkeley or University of uh, another U, UC system school. He is uh, also not just torture. He also believed uh, it is okay for the uh, president to use uh, military forces to arrest people within the United States. Mm. So you have literally have these people just like Albright. Their legacy is to be the, you know, perfect servant for imperialistic master. So I, you know, I want to bring this up. So because I don't think it's a Cold War is a tricky name uh, termed by the ma uh, mainstream media. So everybody will believe this uh, military effort is solely for, you know, counter communism when, when in fact it's not. So that, that's what I would suggest not to call her a Cold War warrior. She is just a servant for the uh, imperialistic uh, agenda. Those are good points. Those are good points. I mean, I can't argue there uh, with you, Peter. You know, uh, the Cold War really, as you said, it is a cover. It is a cover for this a very violent imperialist system that was waging an incredible during that post-World War II to, to uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, incredibly violent conflicts, wars, and they all had a racial basis to it. You are, you are very correct. And also anti-Soviet, anti-communist politics had an incredibly intense racial basis to it. And so uh, that is important. And we'll definitely be talking about that here on this show, how anti-colonialism, how the struggle against a white supremacy and how that affected the class struggle both in the U.S., in the West, and abroad really did shape how that the Cold War was so-called fought, as well as how it was framed. And it leads very conveniently into this multiculturalism, the so-called identity politics, the elevation of certain individuals from oppressed sections of the population into the halls of power. It leads very conveniently into the identity politics realm, uh, because it wasn't until the U.S. had this hegemonic position that it could do what it's doing now, which is having people like Madeleine Albright and having people like Colin Powell, Barack Obama, Condoleezza Rice, etc., be the representatives of this empire. Uh, back in the day, there was an attempt to do that. Uh, the CIA even had this program uh, right, the, uh, um, that tried to employ jazz artists to go around the world, and especially the African continent, and convince uh, African countries like Ghana, etc., that indeed the U.S. was not racist. Uh, there is a similar, I think, even more effective campaign now that there isn't so much of an anti-colonial movement, not so much of a black movement in the United States anymore. I mean, during the Bush era, as you said, Peter, uh, there were a lot of figures employed to do what Madeleine Albright was doing um, in the case of women. And uh, we know that the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, everybody except Barbara Lee voted for Afghanistan. Everyone voted uh, there was there was very little opposition to Iraq, but that get, it got even worse. It got even worse during uh, the invasion of Libya, uh, where there was uh, v v 
very little, if any, opposition uh, to the U.S. NATO invasion of Libya. So this is a big problem, and we're going to talk about it more. So I think I have Joshua on here, and then uh, for those who are sticking around, if they want to participate, uh, you can. If you all want to participate, you can. And then, um, or if anybody who's still uh, in the queue want to want to make any more comments, but uh, I have Joshua up next. All right, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. All right, so I just I want you to uh, kind of talk with the audience and myself a little bit about first strike doctrine and what you know of it and kind of as I see as kind of reviving the Marshall Plan, which seems very interesting. And then uh, international criminal court membership for the United States versus other supposed terrorist and or genocidal um, imperialist organizations. And uh, then there's a few uh, things that I want to kind of get on the record just in regards to the militarization of our own police services. and if you look at the Nuremberg trials and the trial lawyer and what he warned about at the beginning about chickens coming home to roost, uh, there's really not much difference from my perspective on that. Um, I'm reading a book right now called The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, which is, you know, essentially Alan Dulles's non-authorized autobiography, um, which gives you some good indications of maybe what's going on still. Um, and then uh, one other book that I would recommend is Call Sign Chaos from Mattis. And he was fired by Trump uh, at one point. But yeah, I think that's a good indication of kind of where our military sees things. And they don't respect our leaders any more than we do, I don't think. Well, you brought up a lot there. I, I'll try to address as much as I can uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the first uh, strike doctrine. I mean, that's been a long debate about how to deal with this question of nuclear weapons. And, you know, I think that uh, there is this push to try to, um, especially among all states, but the United States in particular, to uh, have this no first use policy. Uh, But really there isn't much left in terms of treaties, in in terms of... uh, anything internationally that the United States is willing to even listen to, which kind of prevents it. So, so I think that there is, um, especially now with this new cold war coming at fever pitch, there is this, I think, alert about nuclear weapons and, and their potential use, which is real. Now, on the other hand, I do think that there is this obvious reality that this isn't, um, you know, this isn't 1991 anymore. There are other countries who do have nuclear weapons uh, that could use them defensively if if they were provoked into doing so. I know there was a lot of alarm when Russia said that it was putting its uh, deterrent forces uh, on high alert. You know, I, I do think that there is this mutually assured destruction doctrine that is still also a factor um so i don't know if you know any you know if if a first strike policy i mean these imperialists are so ridiculous i don't know if there's uh if there's really much room for that but i could be wrong as well you know i tend to go on the side of you know imperialism still wants to reproduce itself now on the other issue of 
militarization of the police, uh, I do think you are correct there. You know, I do think that there is this uh, a direct connection and uh, the militarization of the police, right? I mean, it didn't begin. It began during the Cold War. I mean, I mean, it really began during the Johnson administration uh, with the law enforcement um, agency that was created uh, under under Johnson during the so-called riots in the cities, mainly black cities, uh, the Law Enforcement Assistance uh, Act, which basically allowed, yeah, military weaponry and allowed National Guard, right, to kind of come in and repress any kind of rebellions that would happen at home. And that laid the basis for where we're at now. It laid the basis for uh, what the 1033 program which continues to funnel money from the Pentagon and weapons from the Pentagon into police departments in order to militarize them at the local level, right? You even have the NYPD training in Israel, which is no doubt an official connection that's facilitated by Washington, D.C. and and uh, overseen by Washington, D.C. So there's no doubt that this militarization of police policy is certainly worth mentioning and putting on the historical record of this overall cold war. If, if we want to call it that this podcast is about the cold war. It's about cold war politics. It's about the first and the second and the new cold war. And certainly as right, the war on drugs, the Reagan administration, the post, um, so-called civil rights era, which all of this happened during the Cold War, laid the basis ideologically, I think, for what we are seeing today, right? It's this chickens coming home to roost, where we do have this criminalization, this rendering of an enemy out of anyone who speaks out of turn, who uh, speaks out for peace, who speaks out uh, really just, you know, against this massive surveillance regime, right? The architecture of that was developed during the Cold War. It was developed during the war on drugs, the criminalization of black people, the criminalization of poor people uh, that helped cement this larger infrastructure of oppression that we're seeing. And now, of course, in times of crisis, like this Russia-Ukraine conflict, it has always expanded further and further. The same happened during the war on terror. It was expanded further and further to encompass Arab, Muslim populations, and of course, to encompass all of us as we all became uh, you know, targets of this, this kind of repression in some degree. So, so thank you for that um, comment. And I'm going to get to Jenny um, who has been waiting very patiently. Um, you can unmute yourself, Jen. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I'm specifically calling in about Madeline Albright. <clears throat> and uh, when she was Secretary of State in 2000, Bill Clinton sent her to North Korea and what were considered unprecedented talks with um, Kim Jong-un's father. And so... I'm somebody who's on the right conservative and come at things from a, you know, more militaristic approach. And I remember that, you know, we felt like she was really naive and brought a basketball, you know, was trying to connect with them in this peaceful way. And we felt like she 
you know, just accepted the lies at face value. And then the North Koreans came back later and said, yeah, we, we lied to you, you know, and, and we just felt like, you know, it was pointless to try to connect with um, this communist guy. And so I just feel like her legacy of, um, you know, the Bosnian war and what happened with um, all the, you know, kind of fake war at the time. There are many of us who knew that Bill Clinton needed some distractions from his domestic problems and was willing to engage in militarism to distract the country. Uh, there was a war that was termed Monica's War when he sent some missiles into Iraq. And so, you know, to say that this type of activity was mostly being done on the right by someone like George Bush during Iraq. It's not true. Bill Clinton was engaged in all kinds of this stuff. And, and Madeleine Albright was right there by his side. And we felt like she was fumbling it with the people who were really doing horrifying things to their own people and then enabling it in other countries where, you know, I think it just would have been better to leave Bosnia alone. And so, you know, it's just interesting how people have these different perspectives. I, I look at the last 30 years of American uh, militarism with horror and, um, you know, just wish that we would have kind of stayed home and minded our own business. Mm. Thank you for that comment. Of course, yeah, I come from things on the right and I, I do think that there we should be negotiations with North Korea, I do think that the sanctions against them are just not um, not productive. The militarization of South Korea is not productive. It's it's a threat to peace. Uh, it it only fuels this new Cold War with China, which doesn't lead us to any, I think, uh, possibility for denuclearization or anything else that the U.S. talks about with regards to, to North Korea. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, but I do share the sentiment that the last 30 years of foreign policy has been a complete disaster. Uh, but I come at it from the perspective that uh, the will and interests of ordinary people are not really reflected among the foreign policy establishment. And thus, it only makes sense that they would pursue these disastrous policies because they do genuinely believe, and they are usually vindicated in this belief, that these wars will serve not only their careers, but also will serve those who they ultimately work for, which is the militarists, the industrial, the military-industrial complex, the war profiteers, the contractors, the big energy corporations, finance, right? Big finance, Wall Street. They all benefit mightily from threats of aggression and, and real aggression. So uh, with that said, though, you know, we're coming up at the end of today's episode. Um. Yeah, I thought it was a really good conversation. Thank you all for participating today. So we just got to remember that this uh, Cold War, right, is uh, this new Cold War. It's uh, it's hot. It's very hot. And so Peter's comment was definitely 
very on point because when I talk about Cold Wars, first and second, the old and the new, I'm really talking about a, a long-standing foreign policy agenda, uh, one that, well, communism, of course, was a very legitimate uh, aim to overthrow uh, for these cold warriors. Certainly the World Socialist Movement was directly a threat, but it was also a war of aggression against anyone, right, who tried to chart a sovereign and independent path of development. And that is why directly after the so-called Cold War, the aggression towards Iraq, towards countries in the Middle East, towards Iran, which began during the Cold War and continued onward into today, uh, and now with the targets being Russia and China, it has once again, this foreign policy agenda has once again taken on this Cold War identity while maintaining uh, the ultimate agenda, which is to reproduce this American empire that is crumbling uh, by the day and losing legitimacy among large portions of the U.S. population, among larger and larger portions of the entire planet. And if there's any silver lining to this, uh, we know that people like Madeleine Albright's legacy will continue to be revised uh, in the historical record the more and more that the United States and its empire loses its legitimacy and the more and more that it declines. And so there is a silver lining there. But for us, uh, we, are, we need to be optimists for peace and continue to uh, try to make that a reality within our uh, particular uh, society. So with that said, it was good to be with all of you for this latest episode of Cold War Brew. I will see you in a week. And uh, be sure, if you have not subscribed here already, to do that. Subscribe to the channel and follow me here on Colin. And uh, I'll be back again next week. So take care, everyone. And have a good rest of your Sunday. Bye-bye.